Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about one of our biggest problems. It's high time we face the problem of believing in time. There actually are two things that I think are highly suspect in the sense that they go completely unchallenged. One of them is the belief that time is in any way something permanent, something real, for want of a better word. And the other one is the way we refuse to challenge not only that assumption, but the way we refuse as Christians to challenge the belief in God. Today I want to talk about uh, something that I think most most of my friends probably would have thought I, not, I wouldn't go here. This is not something that I would put in an inappropriate conversation because it's pretty detailed. It's pretty tricky. I'm going to deal with philosophy. I'm going to try to deal with it as simply as I can without dumbing it down. However, there's no way to avoid the fact that you know there's some, there's some logic and reasoning here that is truly mathematical, and I'm not going to go in that mathematical direction. But what I do want to do, and what, again, might be surprising, is I want to offer to the world, or to those who are listening to me, the best argument that has ever been presented for why there can be no such thing as God. Now, as I let this concept settle in for just a moment, I want to make clear something. This is not a red herring. This is not going to be a bait and switch. I am very honestly and directly dealing with the greatest argument, in fact, in my mind, probably the only argument that I've heard for why uh, God and time cannot abide one another, why the way we view one uh, cannot be real if the other is true and vice versa. But first, it probably makes sense to actually confront right, right at the beginning, what do we even mean by time? What is time? Well, first off, it's one of those many things, and I'll get to this in a minute, like God, that we don't see or touch or smell or taste. Our sense of it is perhaps a sixth sense, in some manner almost uh, Descartian. Time really is something that we only understand by the relationship of other things. Uh, the way I've heard it spoken before, is that we know what time is because of the motion of material things, the way we observe things around us move, and the interval between those moments of motion. Now, if you want to think about time as being something other than that, then I think you've got a bigger challenge on your hand intellectually and philosophically than I do, and perhaps a bigger challenge than you might be intending to take on. Because the only reason we have clocks, which measure time according to specifications that human beings have set, is because somebody has gone along and tried to codify those intervals. But our understanding of time originally came from the idea that there's a certain point when the sun is highest in the sky, and that point in time indicates that one entire passage of time has gone by, and that passage of time is a day. If we were at a different place in the universe, if we were at a, a different shape or size, or, or our planet was at a different angle, we might have a very different baseline understanding of what time is. Because ultimately, this notion of what, what is a day, what is a year, what is a millennia, or likewise, what is a minute, what is a second, what is a millisecond, all these things come from observing things outside the earth and their relationship with the earth, and the interval between those things that reflect both the movement of the earth and perhaps those other, quote-unquote, heavenly bodies. So, to me, that is an acceptable definition of what time is, and anything else is perhaps a little bit suspect, either because it takes the shortcut of not getting really to the root of the question, uh, because it's relying on something, you know, like a wristwatch on your, on your arm. But that kind of brings, brings me back to my favorite Mark Twain quote, at least quote attributed to Mark Twain. And that's that a man with one watch can always tell you the time, but a man with two watches is never exactly sure. Because even within the realm of what we call clocks and watches, we have a certain degree of healthy and appropriate skepticism about the accuracy of those devices. If my watch began running fast on me, I would not immediately assume that time had changed. I would assume what? That there is something wrong with my watch. If the digital clock on my microwave got out of sync with the digital clock on my uh, range in my stovetop, I would not assume that anything was wrong with the concept of time. 
I would assume that something was wrong with those mechanical devices, correct? So we have this idea that, that time is outside of us and yet somehow permanent. And yet at the same time, we only understand time when it comes to time's relationship with our measure of the movement of other things. The actual biggest argument, the best argument, against the notion that there can be some sort of godlike being is time itself. I say this is the only persuasive disproof of God. And I say that from my perspective, because all the other arguments beg the question. Most of the time, they beg the question on the issue of materialism. But I think that even the others that don't have that direct issue beg the question in some other way. And I would challenge us to think about the convenient arguments that we have, whether those be arguments based on things that we observe. And uh, so you see arguments like, well, I observe something that something I observe, I don't like. I credit the imperfection of the thing I don't like with this notion of, of there being some sort of an um, omniscient, omnipotent being. And therefore, uh, there, we couldn't be in the state we're in if there was such a perfect being. Well, that's faulty because it's not based on a mathematical construct with a given and then a beginning, middle and end. It's based on an anecdotal reaction to things that I see. But even in other cases where the logic seems to be much better, where it's not more akin to the, to the thought of cheering for my favorite team, even in those cases when you're dealing with material things, when you're dealing with origin and with mass and with energy and some of those other sorts of concepts, you've got to realize that the given in the notion of a necessary being is that the necessary being is inherently outside the universe um, original from the perspective of the universe, and therefore not necessarily beholden to its laws. So when someone comes along and makes an argument from the perspective of omnipotence or all-powerfulness and makes the claim that, well, you have this issue that, you know, the natural world works in this certain way and that God probably couldn't work in the same way, therefore there is no God. Well, again, it begs the question. It begs the question that a creator must be part of its creation. And the answer to that is no. And that, in fact, dismisses the argument. Now, from a scientific perspective, you can certainly understand why a philosopher would take the approach of saying, I'm only going to put in my, my bag of tricks things that I can see and observe, things that I can, quote, prove, unquote. And I only object to that thinking when it comes to the notion that we have somehow then become ourselves omniscient. If you say the only things I'm willing to consider inside an argument for or against the existence of a necessary being are things that I'm aware of, then you either must be omniscient or you're discounting what omniscience might be. And I see both Christian friends and non-Christian friends make this argument on a consistent basis that their idea of omniscience is inherently small when it has to be, to be truly omniscient, absolutely eternal. So what is a necessary being? A necessary being is all-knowing, which we would call omniscient, all-powerful, not limited in any way by what can be done, always present, so at all times and in all places, a crucial Christian concept, which may not apply to other religious constructs, but in this case, I'm going to take it from a Christian perspective. All good, but good in a way that might be beyond our ability to understand, uh, in not unlike the manner where a, a very young child may think that a cookie is good and therefore a parent withdrawing a cookie or refusing to provide a cookie is bad, uh, we, we sometimes think of God as being not good enough for this all-good criteria. But I think we probably approach it from what could be a childish perspective, for want of a better word. So you have a necessary being having the characteristics of being all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, and always good. And inherent to that is that such a being is not developing, fully developed, having no origin, having no end, being outside of the universe, outside of time, and in that sense, having uh, no need for um, growth, no need to learn, no need to change. And that's where we hit the argument of omniscience and immutability. And I'm going to quote a Cornell medieval thought professor named Norman Kretzmann from 1966, uh, published in the Journal of Philosophy, volume 63. And this is how he describes it. It is generally recognized that omniscience and immutability are necessary characteristics of an absolutely perfect being. The fact that they are also incompatible characteristics seems to have gone unnoticed. In the main body of this paper, I will present first an argument that turns on the incompatibility of omniscience and immutability, 
and secondly, several objections to that argument and my replies to the objections. Point one, a perfect being is not subject to change. Point two, a perfect being knows everything. Point three, a being that knows everything always knows what time it is. Point four, a being that always knows what time it is, is subject to change. Therefore, point five, a perfect being is subject to change. Therefore, point six, a perfect being is not a perfect being. Finally, therefore, point seven, there is no perfect being. I have just presented you with the best, if not only, well-constructed argument for the disproof of God. There can be no God, because for there to be a God, God would have to know time in an intimate enough way that God could know that at this moment, it is 6.21 p.m., and know one minute later that it is now no longer 6.21 p.m., but it is instead 6.22 p.m., and those two conflicting pieces of knowledge, if known, would reflect a change in the knowledge of the knower. This does not present a struggle for us as human beings, because as human beings, we know what we don't know, meaning we know that we're not omniscient. But for God to be both omniscient and immutable, not subject to change, not needing an improvement, not learning more in the next minute than is available in the current minute, then there can be no perfect being, which either means that God is somehow less than perfect, uh, something that Christians might have to get used to in order to continue worshiping, or that there is no God, or the other possibility that there's something fundamentally wrong with our belief in time. I think the best way to introduce my thoughts on this matter is to use the phrase, on the contrary, and to quote C.S. Lewis from the theology section of his book, Mere Christianity, and uh, kind of wandering through, selectively, a chapter called Time and Beyond Time. I should like to deal with the difficulty that some people find about the whole idea of prayer. A man put it to me by saying, I can believe in God all right, but what I cannot swallow is the idea of him attending to several hundred million human beings who are all addressing him at the same moment. And I have found that quite a lot of people feel this. Now, the first thing to notice is that the whole sting of it comes from the words, at the same moment. Most of us can imagine God attending to any number of applicants if only they came one by one and he had an endless time to do it in. So what is really at the back of this difficulty is the idea of God having to fit in too many things into one moment of time. Well, that is, of course, what happens to us. Our life comes to us moment by moment. One moment disappears before the next moment comes along, and there is room for very little in each. That is what time is like. And of course, you and I tend to take it for granted that this time series, this arrangement of past, present, and future, is not simply the way life comes to us, but the way all things really exist. We tend to assume that the whole universe and God himself are always moving on from past to future, just as we do. But many learned men do not agree with that. It was the theologians who first started the idea that some things are not in time at all. Later, the philosophers took it on, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. Almost certainly, God is not in time. His life does not consist of moments following one another. That is difficult. I know. Let me try to give something, not the same, but a bit like it. Suppose I am writing a novel. I write, Mary laid down her work. Next moment came a knock at the door. For Mary, who has to live in the imaginary time of my story, there is no interval between putting down the work and hearing the knock. But I, who am Mary's maker, do not live in that imaginary time at all. Between writing the first half of that sentence and the second, I might sit down for three hours and think steadily about Mary. I could think about Mary as if she were the only character in the book, and for as long as I pleased. And the hours spent in doing so would not appear in Mary's time, the time inside the story, at all. This is not a perfect illustration, of course, but it may give just a glimpse of what I believe to be the truth. God is not hurried along in the time stream of this universe 
any more than an author is hurried along in the imaginary time of his own novel. He has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually, just as much as if you had been the only man in the world. The way in which my illustration breaks down is this. In it, the author gets out of one time series, that of the novel, by going into another time series, the real one. But God, I believe, does not live in a time series at all. His life is not dribbled out moment by moment, like ours. If you picture time as a straight line along which we have to travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. We come to the parts of the line one by one. We have to leave A behind before we get to B and cannot reach C until we leave B behind. God, from above or outside or all round, contains the whole line and sees it all. The idea is worth trying to grasp because it removes one of the apparent difficulties in Christianity. Before I became a Christian, one of my objections was as follows. The Christians said that the eternal God, who is everywhere and keeps the whole universe going, once became a human being. Well then, said I, how did the whole universe keep on going while he was a baby, or while he was asleep? How could he at the same time be God who knows everything, and also a man asking his disciples, who touched me? You will notice that the sting lay in the time words, while he was a baby. How could he at the same time? In other words, I was assuming that Christ's life as God was in time, and that his life as the man Jesus in Palestine was a shorter period taken out of that time, just as my service in the army was a shorter period taken out of my total life. And that is how most of us perhaps tend to think about it. We picture God living through a period when his human life was still in the future, then coming to a period when it was present, then going on to a period when he could look back on it as something in the past. But probably these ideas correspond to nothing in the actual facts. You cannot fit Christ's earthly life in Palestine into any time relations with his life as God beyond all time and space. It is really, I suggest, a timeless truth about God that human nature and the human experience of weakness and sleep and ignorance are somehow included in his whole divine life. This human life in God is, from our point of view, a particular period in the history of our world, from the year 1 AD until the crucifixion. We therefore imagine it is a period in the history of God's own existence. But God has no history. He is too completely and utterly real to have one. For, of course, to have a history means losing part of your reality, because it had already slipped away into the past, and not yet having another part, because it is still in the future. In fact, having nothing but the tiny little present, which is gone before you can even speak about it. Another difficulty we get if we believe God to be in time is this. Everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. But if he knows I am going to do so-and-so, how can I be free to do otherwise? Well, here once again, the difficulty comes from thinking that God is progressing along the timeline like us. The only difference being that he can see ahead and we cannot. Well, if that were true, if God foresaw our acts, it would be very hard to understand how we could be free not to do them. But suppose God is outside and above the timeline. In that case, what we call tomorrow is visible to him in just the same way as what we call today. All the days are now for him. He does not remember you doing things yesterday. He simply sees you doing them. Because though you have lost yesterday, he has not. He does not foresee you doing things tomorrow. He simply sees you doing them, because though tomorrow is not yet there for you, it is for him. You never suppose that your actions at this moment were any less free because God knows what you are doing. Well, he knows your tomorrow's actions in just the same way, because he is already in tomorrow and can simply watch you. In a sense, he does not know your action till you have already done it. But then, 
the moment at which you have done it is already now for him. Hi there, this is Stu the Beard Perry entreating you to please listen to our show for those about to rock on simplysyndicated.com. Please listen to our show, please! Believe it or not, there's not a huge inconsistency between the arguments of Norman Kretzmann in his argument Omniscience and Immutability and C.S. Lewis in his argument in the book Mere Christianity. They seem at odds with each other because Kretzmann argues that there may not be a reason to accept the idea that there can be a perfect being or a god uh, based on our concept of perfect beings being incapable of change, for want of a better word. I would describe it this way from, from his notes, quoting Plato and Aristotle. A perfect being is a being whose capacities for development are all fully realized. A being subject to change, however, is in that aspect and to that extent a being with an unrealized capacity for development, a being merely potential and not fully actualized, a being in a state of process of not being complete, or hence not perfect. The principle of immutability is a thesis of Christian theology drawn from Greek philosophy and having among its credentials such biblical passages as Malachi 3, 6, and James 1.17. Paraphrasing, Malachi 3.6 says, I am the Lord, and I do not change. And so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not yet completely lost. And James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect present comes from heaven. It comes down from God, the creator of the heavenly lights, who does not change or cause darkness by turning. By his own will, he brought us into being through the word of truth, so that we should have first place among his creatures. So there can be no doubt that from a biblical perspective, God is regarded as incapable of change. And uh, I think it goes even without saying that from a biblical perspective, God is viewed as being all-knowing, all-powerful, always present, and always good. These are medieval concepts coming to us from people like St. Anselm and St. Aquinas, but they're much, much older than that. In fact, along the way, Kretzmann quotes some very old sources in some of his answers to arguments, and I want to quickly share those to feel like I've done a good job of, of kind of explaining his perspective on these things, because in his objections and the replies to objections is where I find my answer, my agreement, in other words, with C.S. Lewis. Objection C. For an omniscient being always to know what time it is, is to know the state of the universe at every instant. It is possible for an omniscient being to know the state of the universe at every instant all at once, rather than successively. Consequently, it is possible for an omniscient being to always know what time it is without being subject to change. Kretzmann raises an example and makes a distinction about the idea of knowing everything at once instantaneously and the incompleteness of that knowledge from the perspective of truly understanding what 6.22 p.m. is. It's similar to the concept that C.S. Lewis referred to. What does it mean for God as a triune being, the Christian concept of Trinity? What does it mean for God to simultaneously be um, outside, above, and beyond time as God the Father? And yet for Jesus to simultaneously know at a particular moment that it is time for dinner. Want to jump forward to objection F. Objection F deals with the concept that um, the formula that a perfect being can do everything must be replaced with a perfect being can do anything, uh, the doing of which does not impair its perfection. Talking a little bit about whether or not it makes sense to talk about the logically possible and the logically impossible. In fact, objection E deals with, since a perfect being transcends time, it is logically impossible that a perfect being know what time it is. So that sort of, that sort of concept. Kretzmann would make the argument in this paper that 621 and 622 p.m. both can be, both are. They're both not true simultaneously, but I would even question that to a certain degree. To jump in for just a moment, something like this. If I know that right now it is 622 p.m., I also know at the same time that where my mother lives, it is not yet 622 p.m. It is only 522 p.m. Or, more to the point, we have agreed as a world, or perhaps only as a nation, or in the United States of America, to be honest, we have states in our country, like Indiana and Arizona, who perhaps have a different standard from time to time than the rest of the country. Indiana, during daylight savings time, by and large, agrees to disagree with the fact that it's 6.22 p.m. at all. To them, it is still 5.22, because they don't do daylight savings time, or at least 
county by county in that state. They don't, they don't play that game. So where I sit, if I call it 622, I know that my mother calls it 522. But in reality, in between where she lives and I live, there is this continuum that if we really truly pointed to a specific spot in the sky and said, when the sun is at that point, that's when it's 622. Realistically, it's not 622 in the states in between my mother and I either. The closer you go from my house to her house, the further back in time you go. This is one of the things you notice when you uh, visit another part of the country or another part of the world and you're in the, a different point in the time zone. I'm used to living you know, kind of on one side of the, of the time zone, not far from the middle, but kind of on the side. And to me, the sun sets at a particular point in time. And when I go to visit um, a place like New York City or Washington, D.C., it gets darker sooner. It gets darker sooner because even though both me and the residents of the East Coast call it 622 p.m. or call sunset a certain time, it gets darker there first because the sun passes sooner. So where my mom calls 522 p.m., uh, when she gets to 622 p.m., it may not be the same amount of light in the sky and not just because of atmospheric conditions either. So there's this idea. In fact, we all kind of have a sense, based on the best science available, that if we were to leave this planet and go to another planet, the passage of time during that journey would be different, and the passage of time on that planet would be different. And what we call a day would, of course, be different, because that planet would have a different orbital pattern, perhaps even a different revolution. So this notion that in the, in the contest between the fact that it's 622 versus 621 at, at night being real, competing with the idea of God being real, I'm not sure that time necessarily comes out on top. So I have an answer here, consistent with C.S. Lewis's point of view, and disagreeing in important ways with Norman Kretzmann's point of view. But to get there, I think I want to start with quoting Kurt Vonnegut and Slaughterhouse-Five. Now, Kurt Vonnegut is not approaching this from a theological perspective. To the degree that he has theological views, he doesn't agree with me. He may, in fact, not agree with me or Norman Kretzmann. But in his book Slaughterhouse-Five, which ironically although fictional is also autobiographical, he deals with a character and tells his story from the perspective of a character who has become unstuck in time. I have mentioned the Slaughterhouse-Five before, referring specifically to the film, because I think that film editor Dee Dee Allen did not just her best work, but perhaps some of the best work in the history of film editing in the making of the 1971 film Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, which George Roy Hill directed. That movie does a good job of, of dealing with the disconcerting nature of jumping from time to time to time. And as a person, uh, having to figure out what part of your life you're in and what you're supposed to do in that part of your life. Uh, the film, in my opinion, not as good as the book, but that kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? And nevertheless, a very good film all the same. I want to quote from an early section in Slaughterhouse-Five when uh, Billy, in the basement of his home, is writing a letter to the editor. In fact, it is second letter to the editor where he is trying to explain to a world he feels must know this information. The fact that our concept of time is flawed and our concept of dimensions is flawed because he has been taken by an alien spaceship to the planet Tralfamador. And on Tralfamador, things function in four dimensions, not three. And therefore, their concept of the universe is both different and more true because it has additional information. Like I mentioned at the beginning, the, the flaw in most materialist-based arguments against the existence of God is that they beg the question that our understanding of materialism is complete. Well, it's not. Now, this is a fictional account, but I think that there's some deep truths being told by Vonnegut, who, again, would not take my position from a theological perspective, and yet perhaps in some ways his book actually does. Starting on page 25 of the 1994 reissue, the original 1969 book um, published by Delacorte Press. Billy was working on his second letter when the first letter was published. The second letter started out like this. The most important thing I learned on Tralfamador was that when a person dies, he only appears to die. He is still very much alive in the past, so it is very silly for people to cry at his funeral. All moments, past, present, and future, always have existed always will exist. The Tralfamadorians can look at all the different moments just the way we look at a stretch of the Rocky Mountains, for instance. They can see how permanent all the moments are, and they can look at any moment that interests them. 
It's just an illusion we have here on Earth that one moment follows another one like beads on a string, and that once a moment is gone, it is gone forever. When a Tralfamadorian sees a corpse, all he thinks is that the dead person is in a bad condition in that particular moment, but that the same person is just fine in plenty of other moments. Now, when I myself hear that somebody is dead, I simply shrug and say what the Tralfamadorians say about dead people, which is, so it goes. That is Kurt Vonnegut from Slaughterhouse-Five. What are you singing? <gasps> Have you never heard this? No. It's uh, Flight of the Concords. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a song about after the ro- robots kill all the humans. Okay. And take over the world. Well, and they sure. go, the humans are dead. That's right, they are dead. The humans are dead. I poked this one, it's dead. <laughs> It's good. I gotta make you listen to it. Alrighty then. <laughs> Anomaly. Something that deviates from what is standard, normal, or expected. An oddity. Peculiarity. Irregularity. Inconsistency. Incongruity. A rarity. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly. The podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. It should be incredibly easy to see how I see a connection between C.S. Lewis's notions, my notions, and Kurt Vonnegut's. But ironically, I have some friends who I think uh, really enjoy and respect the work of Vonnegut, who if presented with this problem from a philosophical perspective, if asked to reconcile the good and bad points in Norman Kretzmann's argument about omniscience and immutability, and to find the right answer somewhere, would they be willing to grant that C.S. Lewis has the right point of view here, because C.S. Lewis agrees with Vonnegut, and therefore, if one of these two things is a false notion, it's probably not God. It's probably time. Or would they instead turn on Vonnegut to one degree or another, and immediately dismiss a profound work, which, although fiction, has a great deal of truth in it, as being less true than they always thought it to be, because it disagrees with their point of view on other matters. In other words, the disbelief in God being more important than the belief in anything else. This leads me to the point that I would like to make. For a lot of people, the character Billy Pilgrim in the book was somebody who was, as a grown man, still dealing with imaginary friends. His daughter, for example, was unwilling to even consider the idea that he might have been telling the truth about having encountered little green men from another planet who kidnapped him and placed him in a zoo, or the notion that he can time travel at all or be unstuck in time at all. So we clearly, in this question of time versus God, have an imaginary friend that we're dealing with. And I can't tell you how many times in dealing with the outside world, um, people that I know, but also people that I don't know, that you get treated as somebody for having a true faith. You get treated as somebody who has an imaginary friend. It is as if your faith is somehow something that you can be patted on the head for and told they're there and sent off to your room. Because if you're going to play with an imaginary friend, it might be better if you did that in private. This is why we often hear people say things about religion that they don't have anything inherently against religion, but they think that a religion shouldn't be shared with anybody. It shouldn't be expressed. It shouldn't be public in any way, because in some way it's embarrassing. Well, I would answer this. I don't think that God is the imaginary friend of any Christian, unless that Christian doesn't have a genuine faith. There's plenty of fake faith out there. Uh, We've seen recent events this year where I believe that um, so-called televangelists or media evangelists have been exposed as being false prophets, people with an incomplete understanding of who God is, with a complete disregard or disrespect for Scripture, and that whatever they're saying is simply a money-making venture where their imaginary friend is acting as their accountant. But I don't believe that in a genuine faith, God is an imaginary friend at all, that God to me is much more real than the concept of time. Time, in other words, is our imaginary friend.
in this respect, time has an advantage over uh, Doctor Who or anyone else in that it can't be ignored. So the current season of Doctor Who that is going on, in fact, the last couple of seasons, deal with Doctor Who's companion being a young girl who encountered the Doctor before she was anywhere near old enough to travel through space and time and other dimensions. And instead, he came back for her later, you know, so her imaginary friend turned out to be real, but she was able to ignore him for years, if not decades. Time doesn't give us that. We live in a world where we are limited by the ability of our perceptions, and among those limitations are the necessity of understanding time. No one is going to accept an excuse for missing a doctor appointment or being late to some other meeting in that um, it didn't really matter whether you were on time or not because time, as we know, from a uh, theological perspective, doesn't exist. So in some ways, this is uh, an imaginary friend that we're beholden to. But nevertheless, I feel pretty comfortable looking at the concepts present in Slaughterhouse-Five, looking at the theology presented to us by C.S. Lewis, who truthfully was only quoting much, much older ideas, and saying, no, I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that when it's all said and done, when we get to the end of this moment, time will come to a stop. Will it come to a stop because it's real, and that's the flow of things? Or will it come to a stop, and at that moment we will realize that it was not only momentary, but also impermanent? or in some manner, perhaps even illusory. That would be the Eastern philosophical concept. I said from the start that I didn't want this to feel like a bait and switch to anyone and that I've presented Norman Kretzmann's arguments as he presented them in 1966 validly and accurately. I haven't taken the time to go through all of the objections and all of his replies to the objections, although I will return there here in just a moment during this different drummer section. But in the interest of you know full disclosure, Kretzmann considered himself through his lifetime and at the time of his death to be a Christian. Let me say that again. A person that I feel has made the best, if maybe on some level the only winning argument for the uh, non-existence of God, was in fact a Christian. Is this, again, some sort of bait and switch, some sort of trick? No. Norman Kretzmann had the distinction about him of being a deep and careful thinker. Now, I can imagine having friends and family tell me at this moment in time that it is completely inappropriate for me to introduce an argument that God doesn't exist when I am a believer. What am I doing? I'm not going to be persuasive that way. I'm undermining the faith. We should pretend that Kretzmann never said any of this. We should pretend that the, the math behind it is somehow inval invalid. Um, we should play dumb and act like it's beyond our ability to understand. And this is a check moment for everyone listening. If at some point during this argument you decided that you're insistence on believing that there is a God meant that it was really critically important that you portray yourself as confused, perhaps you really were, and disregard everything that was being said and hope that in just a few minutes I'd get to the different drummer and we'd be done talking about all this medieval philosophy. Or did you take the other approach? That you're on board with this step-by-step, -step, very simply presented argument that being perfect and uh, the existence of time are inconsistent with each other and all of Christianity hinges on this idea of a, of a perfect God but then you bailed on me somewhere in between because I began talking about the objections to the argument and the objections to the argument are going to defend the concept of God and they're going to defend the concept of God by attacking our reliance on the concept of time. And therefore, I was getting into science that a lot of you probably know like the back of your hand. It's obvious. You've experienced yourself. The sun doesn't set on the coast, uh, off the coast of Seattle at the same time the sun sets in the middle of Montana, and they're in the same time zone. We know this stuff. We know that it gets dark earlier in some parts than later in other parts in places where we call it the same time. And yet at some point, our desire to believe in something or disbelieve in something wins out over anything else. Well, hey, if you feel that way, you're a human being. Congratulations. That's a title no one can take away from you. But to be a genuine thinker, to be the kind of thinker that I would want to rec recognize as a different drummer on this concept of, you know, the impermanence of time, you're going to have to do a little better than that. You're going to have to be willing to 
attack and address arguments that your faith tells you to disagree with, but your, your logic and your reason tells you has some validity. As John Wesley taught, a true and genuine relationship with God doesn't just involve uh, fidelity to Scripture. It doesn't just involve um, reliance upon faith. He said you have to have all four pillars, and those pillars are Scripture, faith, tradition, but also reason. And a genius, or at least a very, very wise man, would be able to recognize where those pillars don't always seem to be holding up the same building, or, to make a pun, aren't holding up the same building at the same time. Kretzmann, in other words, willing to take his Christian faith and put his chips in and say, yes, there's going to be some arguments out there where the logical, the human, the human ability to logically point to the existence of God is highly suspect. Only a person with faith can do that. A person with only a said faith, with a pretend faith or an assumed faith, might not be able to do that because their faith couldn't withstand that kind of intellectual exploration. Uh, here's the other argument that I wanted to present from Kretzmann's paper. Near the end of his paper, the proposition that things change is, however, not necessarily only contingently true. If, as a matter of fact, nothing else ever did change, an omniscient being could, of course, remain immutable. In Objection G, however, an absolutely perfect being has been confused with a being possessing of all compossible perfections, the best of all really possible beings. Consider these two statements. Statement 1. Jones knows that he is in a hospital. Statement 2. Jones knows that Jones is in a hospital. Now, Statement 1 and state, Statement 2 are logically independent. It may be that Jones is an amnesia case. He knows perfectly well that he is in a hospital. And after reading the morning papers, he knows that Jones is in a hospital. An omniscient being surely must know all that Jones knows. Anyone can know what Statement 2 describes Jones as knowing. But no one other than Jones can know what Statement 1 describes Jones as knowing. A case in point, anyone could have proved that Descartes existed. But that is not what Descartes proved, and what he proved could have only been proved by him and not anyone else. This kind of knowledge of Statement 1, Jones knowing that Jones is in a hospital, is the kind of knowledge characteristic of every self-conscious entity, of every person. Every person knows certain propositions that no other person can know. Therefore, if God is omniscient, theism is false, and if theism is true... God is not omniscient. It may be fairly said of God, as it once was said of William Wool, that omniscience is his foible. That is the conclusion of Norman Kretzmann's argument. So how, as Norman Kretzmann, do you continue to function as a Christian with that kind of doubt, with that kind of logical, mathematical, published and acknowledged doubt? Well, first, who's Norman Kretzmann? I prefer to describe Kretzmann as a Cornell University professor of medieval thought. He's described in Wikipedia as being a professor specializing in the history of medieval philosophy and the philosophy of religion, and I encountered him in my university readings from the perspective of the philosophy of religion. And it really actually was this very argument where I'd heard all these other arguments, which I either found tedious because of, of their age, they were medieval ideas, or I found tedious because of their assumptions. Uh, again, assumptions that the things that we have known and measured in our material world have some permanent validity to them without recognizing that our knowledge is no better than Galileo's and Galileo's knowledge was no better than um, Copernicus and Copernicus's knowledge was no better than those before him. If you always assume that everything we know today is everything we're always and ever going to know. That's the brilliance to me of this professor. He was willing to say no. Um, I'm not willing to grant that I know everything I'm ever going to know, and I'm simultaneously not willing to grant that anything that is an old idea is therefore a bad idea, or a discredited idea, or an idea that should not be dusted off, or if we deal with it, we have to view it with some sort of, of contempt or with a grain of salt because of its age. Kretzmann was brought up as a Lutheran in a family where he came from a long line of Lutheran pastors. But he describes himself as having lost his Lutheran faith while at college. He returned to his Christian faith in his 40s. Now, he's born in 1928, so 
probably within just a couple of years of writing the paper on uh, omniscience and immutability, he regained his faith. I think God rewards people who are willing to ask challenging questions of him and about him. And that God will only give a measure of knowledge or perhaps even a measure of faith commensurate with the kinds of questions that believers are willing to ask. If you're a believer who never challenges yourself, if you're a believer who never challenges God, that tells you all you need to know about the strength of your faith. And Kretzmann apparently drew that same conclusion. For many years, he was active, uh, actively a member of the Society of Christian Philosophers. In his early uh, 60s, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma and given less than two years to live. He happened to live much longer than that and completed two more volumes in what he projected to be a three-volume work on Aquinas. If I was going to read more about Aquinas myself, it is Kretzmann's perspective that I would seek first and foremost. When his friends and colleagues wept because they knew he was soon to be dying, he consoled them by saying, You're not a philosopher or a Christian if you are not ready to welcome death. Look at the consistency between Kretzmann's approach to his work and to his imminent death with the character that Kurt Vonnegut created in Slaughterhouse-Five. Not Billy Pilgrim necessarily, but the Trial Famidorians. And I think you'll see that same kind of perspective. A perspective about eternity that to me says that maybe on some level, Kretzmann decided that he had, had gone to the abyss and he had stared over the edge and it forced him to make a decision between whether he was going to invest his truth in time, a concept that we know to be in large measure human contrived. There's nothing eternally significant or materialistically true about a 24 hour day. Uh, we could easily be functioning on base 10 if we were. If we, again, you know, there, there should be a metric system for time so that we as a world could have an argument about whether or not our ancient ideas of how long a day was should be challenged. It's not that the sun would appear in the sky at any different rate. We would just choose to measure it differently because as humans, we have that choice. We have that power because this is where we own the relationship with our imaginary friend. He's our imaginary friend called time. We can dress him up in any clothes we want to. He doesn't have to be 24 hours long, and his years don't have to be 365.25 days long. A lot of the people that I argue with even get confused about the .25 part. Somehow there's something magical about leap year, where we come across a year every four years that's one day longer. No. Our days, our years have never been 365 days long. We know this, and every four years we throw in an extra 24-hour day to correct the mistake of our conventional measure of time. Of course, a lot of these ideas can't be credited to Kretzmann. Part of the advantage he has as being a you know, philosopher and a professor of medieval thought is he has access to a great deal of medieval thought and a good command and understanding of it. In other words, he does the work so that people like me don't have to. In a Stanford University encyclopedia entry about Kretzmann called A Temporal Eternity, it says this, a very different approach to explaining God's knowledge of the contingent future involves suggesting that God exists outside of time altogether. This would mean that God does not foreknow the future, strictly speaking. Instead, the idea is that God knows all events from the perspective of a timeless eternity, or what Kretzmann would call a temporal eternity. Many theists have adopted this view throughout the centuries, including the highly influential medieval theologian St. Thomas Aquinas, 1225-1274. One of the earliest Christian theologians to defend this approach to answering the knowledge question was Boethius, 480 to 524, who wrote in the Consolation of Philosophy that, quote, since God has a condition of ever-present eternity, his knowledge, which passes over every change in time, embracing infinite links of past and future, views in its own direct comprehension everything as though it were taking place in the present. Boethius. This is an idea that has been laid down hundreds of years ago, well before C.S. Lewis got around to delivering a radio address to war-torn England during World War II, which, by the way, in real life, would have been corresponding almost directly to the point in time where the fictional character Billy Pilgrim in Slaughterhouse-Five would have been eyewitnessing firsthand the complete destruction of Dresden. Something about time there makes a good pun. I guess what I would say to my non-Christian friends is, 
this is a good topic to discuss. This is something we do not have to divide over. This is something that some of the greatest minds in the history of the world have not been able to put sure footing down upon. But there is something fundamentally wrong with refusing to think about it. You can refuse to think about it because you're not bright enough to engage in the conversation. But you can't refuse to think about it if you are bright enough to engage in the conversation. But you don't want to. Because the answer that you want is more important than the hard work of getting there. Especially when thinkers like Norman Kretzmann have demonstrated not only through their writing, but also the way they've lived their lives, that thinking the argument through might take you to a different place than the answer you've decided you want. And for that, I'm very grateful for the life and work of Norman Kretzmann. As his doctors had predicted, Kretzmann did die. He died on August 1st, 1998. Ironically, this is not when his doctors predicted, but then again, Kretzmann's view of time might have been very different from their view of time. How did I respond to this? Well, I was unaware. I had read Kretzmann's work, disagreed with the conclusions that he drew, dismissed him completely, but found myself continually revisiting him because there's something incredibly valuable about knowing what the best argument is against your point of view. This is not at all different from how I handle books. If I like a book like Slaughterhouse-Five, I'm more likely to read a negative review than a positive review. I already know I like it, and I already know why I like it. The confusing thing for me is why other people don't. So what I say, knowing that I've encountered his, uh, the notice of his death at least 12 years too late, there's really not much you can say. So it goes. At the conclusion of the Different Drummer segment, I, I had perhaps some challenging words for people who may share a lot in common with me, including camaraderie, but not the belief in God. But now I think it's time for me to turn my argument back toward my Christian friends who share my belief in God, but have a reason why they're also afraid of this argument, that they don't want to engage in this kind of conversation either because they don't know where this is going to take them. And just like somebody who first and foremost, wants to deny the existence of God and won't entertain any idea that might challenge that. I know a lot of Christians, and I'm sure everyone else knows a lot of Christians, who won't entertain questions about the existence of God either for the same equal and opposite reason. In that article from Stanford University on atemporal eternity, it goes on to say this. Some philosophers have objected to this way of explaining God's knowledge because it represents an unbiblical picture of God derived largely from Greek philosophical influences. I disagree with this claim. I disagree with this claim that the Bible doesn't reflect this idea of time being less real or um, permanent, not one of the permanent things. And the only way that I can answer that, the, the point that this is not a biblical worldview, is to actually present a biblical worldview. So I'm going to end today with some quick quotes in Scripture and some comment back against the idea that um, God, in Scripture, through people that we view as having great authority, King David, the Apostle Peter, has told us about the sinfulness of exalting time over God. God's days are not like our days. That's a biblical concept. It may be consistent with Greek philosophical thought but it's a biblical concept. Second Peter chapter three, verses three through four, and also verse eight say this, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Peter answers in verse eight, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved that with our Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Peter is perhaps directly quoting Psalm 90, verse 4, where David says this, about God and to God. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. David, in other words, taking it one step further and saying not only is a thousand years like a day, a thousand years may be like just an hour or two, just a watch in the night. In other words, God's days are not like our days. God's time is not like our time. And in the strictest sense of the word, 
time may not be real. Now, I have friends in the church who take the word thousand inappropriately, literally. And this is probably more common than not. You see this very often in interpretations of the book of Revelations, in time conversations, where people have taken the thousand years mentioned in that final book of the Bible to mean something that you can almost put a stopwatch to and start counting the moments. That if you can identify in the newspapers or in the TV news the moment where this happens, then you can measure in time exactly what's going to happen the rest of the way because we're using the newspaper as some sort of theological guide. And we're not only listening to televangelists that we shouldn't listen to, but we're driving theological interpretations into the words of TV anchormen and news reporters, which we also shouldn't do. No, from a biblical perspective, thousand means a very large number wherein everything can be included. In other words, when we talk about God doing something in thousands, we're talking about God having everything. Here's Psalm 50, verses 8 through 12. God speaking, saying, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices, and thy burnt offerings are continually before me. I will take no bull out of your house, nor he goats out of your folds. For every beast in the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. For the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Theologically, can there be any doubt that when God is saying the cattle upon a thousand hills are his, that God is not saying that he owns all of the cattle, that everything in creation belongs to him? Would anybody seriously suggest in some wooden, literalistic interpretation, immature interpretation of the Bible, that if I can just find that 1,001st hill, it's beyond God's control, beyond his creation, and it's mine and not his? Or is in the same sentence, in the same expression of ownership over all creation, when God says, every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the mountain, and the wild beasts are mine, that he's not saying everything. God is literally saying that every single moment in the history of the universe as we know it is to him like a watch of the night, like a blink of an eye. And as a Christian, reading the Bible as it is written, reading prophecy as prophecy, reading poetry as poetry, reading theologically, can there be any doubt that God has said in Scripture that time, as we know it and as we describe it, is impermanent? And if you had to make a choice between the two, the non-existent element. God has a condition of ever-present eternity. His knowledge, which passes over every change of time, embracing infinite links of past and future, views in its own direct comprehension everything as though it were taking place in the present. That tells you everything you need to know about the conundrum of omniscience and immutability. And it also tells you that the very best argument out there for the non-existence of God doesn't hold water. And the author of that argument knows it too. When your time is done, when you are ultimately reminded of the meaning of the word momentary, will you be left with anything real? Anything real in the sense of permanent I believe that there are some permanent things, God things, so to speak, things like love, but time is not one of them. Thanks for listening. Thank you.